being involved with a narcissist can be like living in hell in many ways. And if you're in that situation, it can be extraordinarily difficult to maintain any sense of self-worth or any hope of living a life that is free of criticism, manipulation, control, and abuse. My guest today has not only experienced life with a narcissist firsthand, she has become an expert in guiding people through the journey of dealing with a narcissist and in surviving trauma. In this episode, we talk about different aspects of emotional and mental safety and how to navigate through the disorienting, confusing, and often dangerous landscape of being in a relationship with a narcissist, whether that person is your boss, a parent, or a romantic partner. It is a fascinating conversation, and I learned a ton. So I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Here we go. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude. Today, I am really excited to bring on the show Babita Spinelli. She is a psychotherapist and certified coach who works with people who are experiencing significant life transitions, couples looking to improve or rebuild their relationships, and survivors of trauma and abuse. One of her key areas of focus is on narcissism and how to deal with people who are narcissists. She received the 2019 New York Psychotherapist Award. She's also a lawyer, and she used to work on Wall Street. Welcome to the show, Babita. Thank you, Cynthia. I am so glad that we are going to have this conversation because, well, number one, you are a really interesting woman with quite a story, and number two, you have some insights into something that has always really intrigued me, which is people who are narcissists. So I can't wait to dive into that. Well, I'm so excited for us to dialogue about it today. Great. Well, the way I like to start the show is with just a few sort of get us going kinds of questions, and then we'll dive into the nitty gritty. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. What is your favorite thing to do for fun right now during our little COVID era? Actually, I'm really enjoying diving into baking. I have pulled out the bread maker that was sort of like collecting dust and been doing all these amazing, you know, breads, gluten-free, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been really such a joy for me during this time. Are you eating everything that you bake or are you sort of distributing the joy around? I am distributing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question, though. Because yes. At first, I was eating it, all of it, and then I had to kind of, you know, take a pause with its effect. <laughs> what has been the coolest thing that you've made? I made olive bread. It was wonderful. And, you know, I just, when we would go out to eat at an Italian restaurant, I would love the olive bread and dipping it in either balsamic or olive oil. So that was really nice. Ooh, that sounds really cool. What was the most challenging thing about working on Wall Street? Great question. I would say just navigating all the 
personalities and dynamics in that space, there's a lot of pressure. And so you're really trying to create some relatability to other people. And there's a lot of like very significant deadlines. So it's really important that you're always attuned and stepping up and sort of on your game. That sounds like walking a tightrope in a way. You know, it can be. I think, you know, once you end up sort of understanding the rules of the road and really diving into the, the, the work that you do, you know, you can, a person can navigate it, but there are definitely a lot of high expectations, um, naturally so, right, when you're working on Wall Street. And really, it, I would say the most important thing is making sure you always like replenish yourself because it can be depleting. So you really do have to create some sort of balance or you will burn out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because my next question for you is what is your favorite self-care practice? Ah, well, interesting. You should ask me that because I actually wrote a disclosure piece on what is your therapist doing for self-care during quarantine. Huh. Um, I'd say for me, a couple of things. I love to swim. And so I have a pool in the back and I, I enjoy that taking long walks but I always just try and take an hour to just journal, listen to some calming music and just kind of sitting there with like a nice herbal tea. I mean, I know it sounds so cliche, but those are the things that I just pause and make room for. That's wonderful. I think that kind of a timeout, especially if you can be outdoors and get some nature and some sunshine and fresh air and then just nourish your senses. Is, is a really great way to refresh and rejuvenate yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I say to my clients, you are your own garden. And let's look at what you need to do to nourish that. Regardless of everything that may be going on in the country, in the world, nourish your garden, water it, take care of it. So I'm curious, has your self-care changed from what you used to do when you were on Wall Street? Yes, it has. I would say that probably now I am more inclined to slow it down and really just to maybe take a little bit more time, you know, in nature, etc. Whereas probably on Wall Street, my self-care might have been a little bit more active and it was still self-care, but it was maybe a little bit more active than it is now. But when I work, you know, with a lot of high performers, I work with a lot of executives, you know, part of what I work with them on is how do we allow ourselves to embrace just slowing down and recognizing we can be in the process, even though it's a very results oriented space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really interesting. It's, It's such a cool area to focus on because it's so individual, like what actually feels like caring for yourself. And it does change over time, depending on the environment you're in, the work you're doing, you know, the different sources of stress, possible outlets that you have. It's, it's really something that like, I look at my self-care habits now versus 20 years ago, and they're totally different, totally different. You know, that is so true. I might've, you know, 10, 15 years ago, not thought of like, you know, just taking a long lingering bath, right? I might've seen that as being unproductive 15 years ago. 
now it doesn't feel that way at all. But one of the things I think is very common that I feel is important when we think about self-care is boundaries. So whether you are in a, a, a Wall Street position or an attorney, et cetera, or you are you know, just sort of working remotely and trying to, or, or even, you know, a parent trying to handle work and children, it's really about boundaries. And I think boundaries are the biggest self-care. Where do you recognize how to set your limits and when you need to take that pause? When do you not allow things to bleed in so that you end up realizing that you, that you are almost at depletion level? But if you set those boundaries ahead of time, you can actually be more proactive about your self-care. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's really cool that you went there because actually one of my questions for you is just all about boundaries because I think what you're talking about is sort of preserving and protecting your inner resources and your time. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on what different kinds of boundaries there are and then how to set them and what to do if they get transgressed. Sure. I mean, so... There's several different kinds of boundaries. I think one of them is, and a lot of this is coming up now, you know, with COVID because everybody's working remotely. So let's look at just like sort of that boundary around the professional space first. And that really is recognizing when you need to shut it down, when you do need to turn off your laptop, step away from your email and make sure you are connecting with yourself or to your family or anyone who you you love that's around you with your pets, you know, really like turning it off and recognizing that there'll always be something you can do for work and sort of, you know, making that transition. So that's sort of setting a boundary in that situation. I would also say setting a boundary is, for example, when you feel like you might be bombarded by other individuals that may be very depleting of your time. It could be anything from a narcissistic parent to maybe a friend who might sort of use you as sort of an emotional dumping ground. So setting a boundary there is recognizing how much of myself do I want to give and where do I end up recognizing that this is unhealthy for me and for me to be able to recognize the language I need to use or the space that I need to take to be able to not have these individuals bleed into my personal mental space. So that's another sort of boundary, creating those personal boundaries with, you know, individuals that could possibly be too emotionally, you know, attached and depleting or even toxic in, in your life. And other boundaries are even just something that's, you know, very simple around things that, that happen with regard to physical boundaries. I mean, the more obvious is when we have situations around where there's addiction, where there's alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera, where someone is actually a toxic individual and you have to just really set those boundaries of ensuring that that individual does not take space in your life and you're doing what you can as far as far as those sort of physical boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so many dimensions to it. And it's something that like, I have two things that I absolutely love digging into. One is boundaries and the other is navigating through fear. Well, I don't think that I will ever feel like I'm totally great at understanding either of those topics. So I feel like I can always learn something about them. And there are always situations that come up that are novel where it's like, well, I don't exactly know what to do with this. 
So they're challenging areas for me all the time. And I love you know, what you're saying about the different types of boundaries, because it's really all about self-protection, you know, mental, emotional, and physical self-protection, which is what I'm all about too. You know, that is exactly right. And what's interesting and one something that I didn't bring up that boundaries become very prominent is when it's the space of the potential for infidelity or affairs. So when I work with couples, we actually speak a lot about boundaries and that there will always be someone maybe lurking to bleed a boundary into that relationship space that should be sacred, capitalizing on maybe someone who might be having a hard time in their marriage, you know, or in their relationship and how important it is to set those boundaries in terms of other people, because it could really lead down a path of possible infidelity. And so boundaries in the relationship space is actually really powerful. And that's been coming up a lot in the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What you're, what you're reminding me of is that I know somebody who is married and her partner has a best friend who's been like a very, 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 very close friend for at least a decade. And somehow that super close relationship has become an issue or a factor in the marriage. And, you know, it's not an infidelity, but it is, it is kind of a, an intrusion. And I can see how hard it would be in that situation to set a boundary. Like if it were, if it were me, I would feel very selfish trying to set a boundary in that situation because be like, well, you know, my partner knew this person before they ever met me. So isn't it kind of selfish for me to try to want to keep them to myself? But on the other hand, for a marriage, you, you kind of do have to make your space together as a couple sacred. Absolutely. And I think sometimes it can feel a little hazy. And often it's just a matter of asking ourselves particular questions such as, you know, am I feeling uncomfortable in this situation? Is my relationship feeling, um, is there some discomfort around this individual being in our life? And taking that pause and really noticing that. And, you know, I always say, why do boundaries matter? Is because oftentimes we may not recognize that we're not checking in with how we're feeling about something. We may end up leaning into maybe thinking or accommodating someone else's feelings. and that also leads us to maybe feeling resentful or angry. So I would say setting boundaries in that relationship space is important because you're also recognizing what are your own feelings? Where do my feelings begin and end? Where does someone else's feelings begin and end? And respecting that. Yes. Yes. And you also, you can't assume. I think that's one of the things looking back on my first marriage, I assumed certain boundaries were true and were sort of agreed upon. but like we had never actually had conversations about them or been conscious of them, but I assumed they were true. And then I felt like some of them were being transgressed, but of course we had never really actually had any communication whatsoever about them. Hmm. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I, I would say the same thing when I think about growing up, it was never quite defined as boundary, you know, that, and even I, I would say, this wasn't even out there in so much literature for individuals to really understand, even psychologically, until I would say more likely in the past 10 years. 
recognizing something is what is a boundary? What are my feelings? Is this uncomfortable for me or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's such a cool subject. Gosh, we could do a whole episode just on talking about boundaries, but a whole bunch more I want to talk with you. <laughs> yes, I hear you. Maybe another time, right? I will bring you back and we'll just focus solely on boundaries because I think that would be really, really cool to dig into even more. I agree with you. So what advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? What a great question. I think the first uh, piece of advice is do not undervalue yourself. Recognize your self-worth. Recognize that you are good enough. I think there's a lot of self-esteem, devaluing, and self-worth issues that come up with younger self. And we don't really realize that. And so we end up sort of speaking of boundary crossings, right? We end up getting ourselves into situations because we may not feel as confident in terms of who we are. And so I would say, take that step back. You are good enough. You do have self-worth and leaning into that sort of confidence. That's great. And and I think one of the things that comes up for me is I don't think I knew in my 20s what self-worth really was. So how do you recognize that? And like, if you want to feel like you're worth something, what can you do to kind of figure out what that is? I would say there's, um, it's sort of multi-layered. Part of it is, you know, are you creating a life for yourself where you're honoring your gifts? And sometimes it could be things as, you know, what, you know, are you constantly learning? Are you in a work situation where you feel confident and you're sort of managed by someone that sort of like helps you to grow? Um, Do you associate yourself with friends that are nourishing, that are supportive, that are part of your village, that sort of help you to continue to sort of like cultivate who you are? Are you doing things that cultivate that? Sometimes it's even as simple as, What are the things you're interested in, passionate about, and do you allow yourself to lean into it? Are you even volunteering in places that make you recognize what you have to offer? And are you embracing and taking in sometimes what people are saying? And I'm not saying that your validation is to always come from external sources, but often we're very quick to discount it. If someone does validate or does say something um, really positive or healthy about ourselves, we tend to push it aside, especially at that age. We don't necessarily always embrace it. The other part I would say with regard to that is mentorship also often helps us with our own self-worth, feeling inspired, leaning into who are the people that we look at that model you know, the way we would like to be and recognizing then those traits within ourselves. Oh, that's great. Oh, I'm glad I asked that question. Because it's easy to say, well, you should know what your worth is, but but how? <laughs> so that's that's really cool. Right? I think that's a big question. A lot of people are like, but how? And they don't know and not even realizing it. Sometimes it's just some of the things that I described that build it. It's building it. Yes. And I think one of the things that you said about how easy it is to discount when people validate or or give a compliment, you know, is we do that, but then we're very quick to believe people when they criticize or they discount. Absolutely. What a great point um, you're saying, Cynthia, because here's the thing, 
you know, I'm sure even now, but early on, it's so easy when someone says, oh my God, you look fabulous. Oh no, this dress, you know, makes me look X, Y, and Z, right? Like there's such a dismissiveness and that's just sort of a simple cliche example. But when that piles up, we often then absorb that and that's how we start to think. We start to wire our brain to dismiss these gifts and these qualities and we tend to ignore them, but instead our inner critic starts to grow. And so this brings up another point of how we can cultivate self-worth is, are we cultivating our self-compassion? Because they are friends and they do go hand in hand. Mm. Oh, wow. That's juicy. Self-compassion. I haven't ever really thought about that as, it's not really a quality so much as it is an action. Exactly. Because if we look at an individual or ourselves in parts and we think about our inner critic, right? Like we're so critical. We think about younger self and individuals in their 20s, 30s. And as they, if they, if they give more rein to the inner critic and they're not as empathic towards themselves, literally who's going to lead? The inner critic. Yeah. The nasty little squeaky wheel. Exactly. That like follows everywhere. And you know what happens then? We end up finding ourselves devaluing and ending up in toxic relationships. Yeah, we do. Well, let's talk about that. How do you recognize that that's what you're in? Or how can you even, as you're growing up, you know, as a teenager and getting into your 20s in your first relationships, like you don't really even know what a healthy relationship is oftentimes. So how, how do you even know that that might be how you're, the path that you're going down? It's true. You really often don't know. And sometimes that even comes from one's own family roots, which is why I think family history really does come into play for many is the first part is uh, not knowing because they may have been in a family situation where there were unhealthy relationships. So they didn't, nothing was modeled for them to really understand, for an individual to understand, wait a second, this actually isn't healthy, right? This, you know, this kind of arguing or this kind of criticism or what's taking place that they've observed in their parents or family members actually is unhealthy. So I think that can actually create a situation where someone then kind of goes down a path because they really don't know. Other times they may not know because there just may not be a lot of guidance around it, right? There may also be a lot of pressure when someone is like younger on who they think they might like or who they should be with because they're still getting to know themselves and what relationships are about. So I would say part of the journey is the more that, you know, you can recognize your own feelings and allow that inner voice to take shape and to listen to it because, and this is why I think this is so important is because there is our, there is an inner voice that is indicating something is not right, or we might be feeling anxious, which is an indicator. I may not be in a healthy relationship. I have so much anxiety around this person or I don't feel really that great around this person, or I might feel fearful around this person, or I don't feel heard around this person, or I feel not good enough around this person. So I would say, how do you know? And there's a lot more here, but maybe the first thing is, 
notice what you are feeling around this individual that you're dating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because in the work that I do in teaching self-defense, the starting place is how do you avoid being in a dangerous situation? Will you listen to your instincts and your intuition? Because pretty much everybody who's ever experienced any kind of violence will tell you that they had a bad feeling about it. And uh, that's something that my coach, Tony Blower has really spoken quite a lot about is you know, that pretty much everybody has had a bad feeling before the incident happened. And we're really good at dismissing that bad feeling. And you, you just illustrated so many different ways that that warning tingle might show up in your feelings. You know, it's, it's not necessarily just feeling scared. It can, it can manifest in a lot of different ways. So that's a really cool parallel, but you also gave some really good examples of, of how that might show. Cause it's not always like a big red flag waving in front of your face saying, warning, warning. Sometimes it's quite subtle. Absolutely. Sometimes it is quite subtle. And sometimes it does take a little bit of time. Sometimes we, we don't see it right away. You know, especially, you know, if we go to more of an extreme in the spectrum of narcissism where there's love bombing, where someone is just all over you, right? They're just like, you're like the best thing ever. And then here you are, kind of a young, vulnerable person who's still also figuring out your own identity and self-worth. And then you have this person just wanting to like sweep you off your feet and they just, they seem so amazed by you and you just feel so like, wow, this is amazing. This is great. They treat me so well, you know, that whole love bombing space. So oftentimes you may not know initially, but you start to have a little lingering voice. And I think that's where you have to like grasp it. Like, what am I feeling? And identify it. We push that aside. Mm-hmm. You know, we really do. Yeah, we do. And, and what you're saying really is very aligned with what I have heard from women who have been in intimate partner abuse situations and domestic violence situations is you know, quite often the early days were great. You know, and and the turn that was taken was a big surprise, uh, but also that they kind of had this little voice in the back of their heads that said, I don't know about this. There's something not quite right, but they dismissed it. So what you're saying just fits right in with that. Can you talk a little bit more about how a narcissist operates? Absolutely. So there's, you know, we've got a whole, I would say almost like a how do we say like a, a, a spectrum of of narcissism, but I'll just kind of give a little taste of it of how it operates. Then you and I can kind of dive in a little further because this is so rich. Um, what a narcissist is because I don't think we even defined what what narcissism really is. Yeah, perfect. So narcissism basically is um, characterized when an individual has a grandiose sense of self importance a lack of empathy for others, a need of excessive admiration, and they exhibit that through very toxic behaviors. That's a general definition of a narcissist. And often the roots of it is they've had very deep childhood roots of deep insecurity, even though it doesn't, it's not obvious that they did. And it's really that that has then created the narcissist. 
So they may have, they may have grown up in, a, in an abusive situation. They may have had a very narcissistic father or mother, etc. And from there, from that point, that grandiosity, that need for admiration, that need for power and control then is formed. So that is sort of the highly narcissistic individual. And then you've got versions of it, like the introvert narcissist, the covert narcissist, the extrovert narcissist, etc. And then you have the pathological narcissist, which you could have the narcissistic sociopath. So we really do have a spectrum. But what I defined is sort of generally a narcissist. Okay. Well, I've never heard of those variations. Yeah, I think a lot of people haven't. I think oftentimes they may just, and I think the reason why this is important, let me just backtrack, is you might just see it more as the pathological NPD, right? That someone has a narcissistic personality abuse disorder. So sometimes it's not so easy to capture when someone is a covert narcissist because a covert narcissist is very subtle. They may not be outwardly grandiose, but they have traits, which is like, for example, self-absorption, selfishness, passive aggressiveness, a smugness, where they make you feel less than, where you feel like you're always apologizing. So covert narcissists are almost like harder to, to actually discover, to harder to identify. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, th- I think they kind of fly under the radar and you might just think they're just kind of creepy or maybe just a little off, but not actually realize what was really going on. Exactly. And you may not, you may start to feel like, you know, with a covert, like, oh, is it me? Am I sort of saying the wrong things? Or, um, you know, are they really being selfish? Because they're making me think that I'm being selfish. Um, etc. So with covert narcissists, there's a lot of, you start to really question that who's right or wrong or what's really happening because it's so subtle. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a more obvious narcissist, still oftentimes you're still not sure because there's a, an amazing way that they can emotionally manipulate you. And they may have this grandiosity um, a lot of people may admire them, and it's, you start to question: Is it is it me? You know, am, am I doing something um, that's deserving of their anger or how they're treating me, etc.? And so it's a little bit more. Uh, it's, you're still questioning it, but they're more obvious in their qualities once you get into an understanding of: Wait a second, I may be with a narcissist, which we'll get into that in a moment. Some of those red flags. With that kind of a person, is it also that they may behave one way with, with everybody else and a different way with you? Oh my goodness, yes. Bingo, Cynthia. And this is what makes this so hard because oftentimes, and this comes up, you know, in my work with clients who are even could be married to a narcissist, dating a narcissist, you know, someone who's in their 20s, they, it's so hard to recognize because out in the world with everybody, People might adore them and be like, wow, what a great guy or what a great woman. And oh my God, look at how generous they are. Look at how charming they are. Um, Well, how sweet, how nice. But what ends up happening is you then find yourself questioning and thinking, oh my goodness, everybody else thinks they're great. 
but under the covers, so to speak, all of these things are coming out in the home front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I have got to introduce you to one of my other guests, Ruth Van Darlene, who runs Women SV, which is a, an organization that supports uh, women who are in relationships with some of the very powerful people in right now Silicon Valley, but actually all around the all around the country and different parts of the world too. So you know they're very very powerful people, and it sounds like a lot of the people that her ladies deal with are exactly what you just described. Yes. I mean, this is, yeah, I'd love to connect with her. This is definitely coming up. I just recently had a YouTube interview on, you know, leadership and is your boss a narcissist or, or racism and narcissism. So I think, you know, a lot of the power dynamic, right? Because the narcissist is fed by power. Um, and control. And at first they enjoy the idealizing of their partner, but once the partner starts to maybe, you know, come into their own, which they should in any healthy relationship, and the idealization seems to diminish their true colors, their mask comes off and their true colors of anger, control, diminishing the individual, et cetera, et cetera, starts to come out more and more. Mm-hmm. Well, what are some of the other kinds of narcissists? Because you mentioned like six that I have never heard of. <laughs> yeah, there is, well, the other one is sort of the introvert narcissist, which is again, a little bit more subtle. They are more on the quiet side, but there's a lot of passive aggressiveness to them. And what they might end up doing is sort of um, creating a space where you then start to let go of your own friends and family. They might be so dis- attached and socially aloof that you, you know, you may feel like it's there that if if you want to save this relationship or be in the relationship, you can no longer associate with the people that you used to hang out with, right? That comes out a lot in, in, mm-hmm. in the introvert narcissist. We then have the pathological narcissist. This is sort of the the, the closer to the sociopath where the lack of empathy, and if you could see me, I'm sort of like, putting my hand over my eyes, right? Just like kind of up and down, like there's nothing there. There really isn't that feeling. They can really quote unquote kill you off if you don't serve, you know, your purpose or are no longer idealizing, loving them in the way that they think you should. The pathological narcissist consistently lies. Sometimes with that, there may be a lot of continuous infidelity without remorse without any feelings around what this is doing to the person that they're with. So a lot of criticism, a lot of diminishing of someone's feelings in a very extreme way without any empathy or compassion. Um, so we, that's where we have the pathological slash also sociopathic narcissist. Mm-hmm. So what is different about being around a narcissist if that person is like a parent or a sibling? Yeah. So this is also the, almost a very like a additionally really painful space when there is a, let's say a parent who's a narcissist and what happens there. And actually there's this great book on uh, not good enough and it's about narcissistic mothers. But what happens there is the child never really experiences 
the connection between a mother who understands them or understands their subjective experience. Um, this is where the parent is all about what the parent wants and needs and makes the child feel like if there's anything that they may want and need or want to express that they're being selfish, that they're being the, a, a bad child, a bad son, a bad daughter. The narcissistic parent also has a huge sense of grandiosity. So they have to take up a lot of space, even when it comes to children's activities or as the, as the child has become a teenager, they still have to have that importance. The narcissistic parent, even as someone is, let's say, even college age, they still want to have a sense of control over that son or daughter, even when they're getting older and should have their own voice and independence. They want to keep that their child close. They don't want them to grow up. They often may have jealousy over their friendships or even anyone that they're dating or getting into a serious relationship with. They're very critical, the narcissistic parent. So anyone who's had the narcissistic parent, there is so much work on self-worth because they've never felt good enough. Yeah. Wow. That, I'm a little bit reeling just thinking about what a devastating situation it is for a child to to come into the world and have a parent like that. It really is a narcissistic, a covert narcissistic mother or father is very emotionally detached, um, as this could be a, a you know just a, a narcissist itself, but. They're emotionally detached and also can be emotionally manipulative. So what happens is individuals that often feel as adults, sometimes a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lack of self-worth, self-esteem, sometimes you have to ask them, tell me about your childhood, right? They may not define it. They may not even see that they had a narcissistic parent. And can you imagine how conflictual that is? Nobody wants to talk about a parent in a way that's right? That's taught that they're toxic, detrimental, that they're narcissists. It's, it's a really painful space to explore, but so eye-opening for individuals when it's like, oh my God, yeah, I had a narcissistic parent. And what makes that so powerful, Cynthia, is if they're in a narcissistic relationship, they're like, oh my God, it's because I had a narcissistic parent. Right. It's the norm. Right. It's the norm. It's like normalized. They don't know any better. So then if you recognize that, that the person that you're dealing with is narcissistic, what do you do? Uh, there's a couple of options or a few options. I think it really depends on what stage or where you're at. So for example, if you're someone that's dating a narcissist and you start to read up about it and you have a recognition of it, you really have to try and disengage with that person. I mean, the easy thing is, you know, walk away, run away from this relationship. It's not always so easy when you're dating someone and you actually, you know, maybe you have fun with them, you like them, maybe you're used to being in this controlling situation. It's very familiar to you. Um, but I would say, you know, therapy, processing it, having that validation that this is unhealthy is so important and really disengaging and creating boundaries with this individual. If you are married to a narcissist, sometimes it gets a little tougher, right? Because you're now married to this person and it might take some time 
you have to choose and decide, am I going to continue in this relationship or not? So some individuals end up doing couples work and they really try to get to work in a space where there's a specialist to be able to speak to what narcissism is. And if that partner can own it and really do some deep work, there might actually be some hope. Or this individual goes in individually and says, I have to accept that I'm with a narcissist. This is an abusive situation. They have to realize that this is abuse. This is abuse. This may not, even if it's not physically violent. Mm-hmm. And I got to give myself permission to walk away from this relationship and recognize that I deserve better. But it takes some work. It's very difficult for someone to reach that place. And oftentimes, Cynthia, the narcissist starts to want to reel them back in or makes their life miserable. If you try and leave me, I will bring you help. You try and leave me, I'm going to sue you. If you try and leave me, I'm going to say X, Y, and Z. I'm going to say, tell everybody all those secrets that you shared with me. I'm going to put it all over social media. So it's a scary place to be, and it takes some time to disengage. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like when you set a boundary with a narcissist, like how do they typically respond and how dangerous is it when you actually say, you know what, I don't want to be connected with you anymore? They often get extremely angry, extremely angry. And so they, well, there's two options. Either one, they get extremely angry and it becomes really difficult. And then the person who's trying to disengage starts to question themselves. What I've seen happening is, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe it's me. Maybe, you know, because they'll often say, you know what? You're the one who's a narcissist. You're the one who's selfish. You're the one who's weak. Or they start to love bomb you again. You may find that that initial stage of all of those two dozen roses and whining and dining starts to come up again. They will try to win you over. So it can really go in two different directions. In the first part, if other people, let's say family members, think this person is a great person, talk about a challenge, right? So you have to start to find ways to set your boundaries and really recognize that it's like one step at a time and find ways to protect yourself, disengage, and then leave the relationship. Use your village that you know supports you and understands what you're going through, that this person is a narcissist and lean in for help. I would add to your list, work with somebody like me who can help you figure out what you can do to keep yourself safe mentally, emotionally, and physically. Absolutely. I would agree with that. Yeah, because it does seem to be such a common experience that it's it's the decision to, to end or to leave that generates the most violence and hostility and aggression. Absolutely. And that's where, right, you would come in. Yeah. Because that is very true. There are a couple other things that have bubbled up. Well, a couple. I By a couple, I mean like 50. Uh, because like what you're talking about is is really interesting and it it connects to so many other pieces, if you know what I mean. <laughs> it's like, which direction do we want to go now? <laughs> There's so much here. I mean, I think one of the things that I think is important that I didn't say is when you really are with an, an abusive relationship with a narcissist, 
there's certain steps that you might have to take. For example, not telling them you're leaving. Make sure you take all your valuables. Documenting everything. Reaching out to an attorney if you're married to that person and you want to file for divorce. Find a place for safety. Things of that nature. So those are also important things that I just feel is, you know, to note in those situations. Yes. Yes. And I mean, it's, it's bringing up a couple of parallels for me because one of the places that I start working with clients, you know, right at the very beginning of even thinking about personal safety and how to protect yourself is knowing what your value is. And it's kind of loops back to what your advice was to young women today, right? It's like, what is your self-worth knowing what your value is? And, and we often talk about, you know, knowing what it can cost you if you take action and if you do not take action and understanding why you are worth protecting. And that's really hard sometimes for women to get in touch with why they should value themselves enough to be willing to protect themselves. And and so we often just say like, what is your personal reason to survive? What is your what is your reason for being on the planet and how would it affect your friends and family and your loved ones? If something did happen to you and you hadn't taken action to protect yourself. And, and so I think that what you're talking about in dealing with a narcissist, it's like, yeah, you really do need to get clear on what it can cost you if you stay there mentally, emotionally, and physically, as well as what it could cost you in going through the process of getting out, but you also need to understand like what you can gain by your freedom. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And really recognizing that is so important. Like recognizing, like lean into your inner resilience and understand that you can create a different life that you deserve and be able to feel happier, confident because you have been sort of emotionally abused, right? So I think one of the things you're saying in some of the work that that you do, Cynthia, is also this. In narcissistic situations, if someone doesn't know their self-worth, or maybe they did and then they've been beaten down over time, there's a codependency that ends up being created. So the individual is left um, with a very fragile self. And so they may not feel that they have the strength right? To even recognize what life can offer them in terms of the freedom in leaving. There's so much fear. Um, they've, they've been succumbed to domination, humiliation, shame, and it's taken its toll that often they don't even know how to rebuild that to protect themselves, to get that back. So what you were describing and what you do is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and another thing that's coming up in my brain is some work that Rory Miller has done in conflict communication. And he talks about different parts of the brain and, and he characterizes basically the, so, the social part of your brain, like the monkey brain. And, and one of the things that really hit me like right upside the head when I started working with him was really starting to understand that for people who are in this kind of a situation, 
that part of the brain is basically telling you the unknown out there is scarier than the known where you are, even though where you are sucks and actually is quite dangerous. You know, it feels safer to that part of your brain to stay than it does to make any kind of a change. Absolutely. Because this is the fabric that's become the norm. And it it goes back to even, you know, something as analogous as when someone's been in prison for a long time and there's actually some fears of even going back into the normal world, right? Like what that, that feels like to actually leave sort of can be very, very similar. I would also add to that something that can, that can, that an individual may need to work on in order to get them to a place of leaving is recognizing their own limiting beliefs. Yeah. Because, right? Because if you, often one feels like, well, they're the only ones that are going to love me. Um, Maybe I can fix them. Maybe it's something I've done. I don't think I'll find happiness elsewhere. Maybe I'm to blame. I may not be worthy of actually having someone who can treat me well, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yes, the mindset and those beliefs are so important. And I think I said, like talking about navigating through fear is one of my favorite things to do. And one reason why is because looking at what your beliefs are and asking yourself, like, is this true or is this not true? And like, do I have any evidence to support it being true? Uh, is a really big step in that. And it ties exactly in with what you were talking about. Absolutely. Because, right, fear ends up being our friend. (laughs) We end up just, you know, leaning into that and not even feeling like we can sort of push through it and saying, okay, um, this is fear. Um, What are my anchors, right? Um, I can move through this. This is all about fear, but I, if I can move through fear, I can actually, and push through it, I can actually have faith in that there is something healthier and bigger. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the greatest fear that women have when they come to work with you? And how do you help them navigate through that? Mm. I would say a few things. Some of the biggest fears is one is... I don't know. I don't, when it comes to narcissistic relationships, is that, is that what we're looking at? I mean, if it's a narcissistic relationship, it's like, I, I don't know how to leave. I just don't know how to leave. How am I going to survive? Whether it's emotionally, financially, um, how am I going to get through, let's say they're married, how am I going to even get through this divorce? So that would be a very huge fear. I think other fears, generally speaking, are just in relationship work. Is, is this ever going to get better? Am I stuck? And this could be not even in a narcissistic relationship, but you know, can I find reconnection again with this person that I'm with? Can we actually find intimacy again? The other fear that's really big for women is losing themselves. Can I find myself again? And often when we're in the space and doing that work and we look at identity, it's like, I don't even know who I am anymore. And I think that fear, whether it's in a relationship or you've been navigating through life and not really connecting with who you are or you're evolving in different stages, huge fear around who am I and can I get there? Mm -hmm. So how do you help women navigate through those fears? 
Like, are there some specific steps that you guide them through or particular mindset shifts or, or how do you help them work through that? You know, every individual I work with is so unique. So I'm sort of just attuned to looking into what are the different tools that are going to help them. I think the first part is because I'm a psychoanalyst, we do do some deep down work on inner child and parts of ourselves. And so part of that is, okay, what is, um, what are the fears? What are the things that have been cultivated as a child? And how is my inner child still living, which is keeping me from recognizing who I am in my identity and letting go of fear? We then look at things like building self-esteem, like it does my inner critic follow me around or am I a perfectionist? What are the different parts of me that end up keeping me from fully knowing myself? And how do we get to our know ourselves? Is let's look at the different parts of ourselves, who we are, what roles they serve within us. Um, other things I do is a lot of, yes, mindset work. Are we looking at things in a fixed mentality versus abundance? Are we leaning into our, um, are we, do we have a scarcity mindset? Are we thinking we're never going to know ourselves and why is that? And then we do a lot of building and empowerment work. So a lot of Kristen Neff self-compassion, a lot of Brene Brown daring greatly, um, things of that nature um, where each person can start to recognize where they have a voice and to feel empowered. So it's sort of like a combination of things that I use, Cynthia, to help individuals create that really strong, empowered sense of self. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, I love that. That's so juicy. And that's one reason why I wanted to get you on the show is because I have sort of shifted from strictly focusing on women and violence to more embodiment and self-defense and look at what you're just saying is totally in harmony with that. I love it. It's so great. And I really see the synergy with us, right? When we think about the mind and the body and the emotional states, there's such a connection there in terms of what, he, what, what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so cool. I just, I got like, like <laughs> it really is. I just had chills. <laughs> It really is. It's so juicy. And you know what? And I'm sure you feel this way too. It's so transforming, right? When you can see someone evolving and transforming in the work. Yes. See them transform and what that's like for them. Yes. And I mean, the thing is, like for me, if you don't have a sense of safety, then you really have a hard time accomplishing anything else, you know, embodying anything else, becoming anything else that is possible for you, because you're always worried about, you know, am I emotionally safe? Am I physically safe? You know, am I mentally safe? And like, once, once you understand how to create that safety for yourself, then anything is possible. And that's where the empowerment comes from. It's like, oh, yes, like, now I can really explore what are my gifts and talents. Now I can figure out like how I can have an impact on the world. And like you're helping people do some really deep work to help them figure out, like once they've figured out how to create safety for themselves, and this is kind of where the boundary stuff comes in too, you know, then what do they do with that? And, you know, you were talking about the process of leaving 
a narcissistic or a toxic relationship and how difficult that is. But then once you're, once you're on the other side, if you've done this work, then you have the freedom to do things differently and to create something differently. Absolutely. And one of the things around that that's so beautiful that I say is remember to feel like that chapter does not identify you. Right. So oftentimes when someone has gone from a space of not feeling safe, right, and then recognizing what helps them to feel safe, right? Then doing the deeper work around what that means, et cetera, et cetera. And then really coming out on the other side and recognizing that is only one chapter. That is not my entire narrative. Yes. Yes. Well, tell me how how do you move forward? after you've been in one of these kinds of relationships, how, how do you start that process of like a life afterwards, the new, the new chapters? Mm-hmm. If I think the first part is really recognizing what you want and need. So it's looking at what's meaningful to you and what you want and need. And it's understanding Okay, this is what I want to need to feel safe. This is what I what I need to do. This is um, how I apply boundaries. This is my recognition of red flags around individuals. So I think part of coming out on the other side and, and creating that space is taking everything that you've learned. And I often say we don't look back to be stuck in the past. We look back for clarity because clarity gives us confidence. And when we understand and know ourselves better, we lean in untamed and with more confidence. So I would say taking all that you learn and applying it and feeling confident in that, but also if you feel like you want to go back into the dating pool and date, realize what you want and need and don't be afraid to check in with yourself around who you're starting to date, notice the red flags and do not hesitate to pause and say, wait a second, is this unhealthy? And I would say to check in with that. The other part is this is trust yourself. You know, often um, when people are creating that new chapter and they're in transformation, sometimes a lot of that can I trust myself voice comes in. Trust yourself. You've done the work. You can do this. You can do this. And I feel like just from my own personal experience, lots of transitions and things in my life, this is why I love this work, is that lean into that resilient part and know you can trust yourself. She's there. Yeah, that is such a big piece of it. And it's interesting because in in talking with women who have been in domestic violence situations or intimate partner abuse situations, that lack of trust is something that really plagues them. And it's like, well, I made such a big mistake the first time and I missed all the warning signs the first time. How do I know it's not going to happen again? And I think that you answered that by saying, well, you have to do the work. You have to, to dig deep and to learn from the past so that then you can trust yourself. You can say, I, I have grown and learned and I know myself better now. And I imagine it's, sort of an incremental thing where you build, you rebuild your trust in yourself. Is that true? It is. It really is a rebuilding a trust in yourself. And part of that 
you're right, is doing the work and owning your part and being brutally honest with yourself, not being critical, but just honest with yourself. Yeah. The, you know, the other part is, as you, as you know, in terms of the trauma space, right, in terms of safety, sometimes it will creep in because there's, there's, there could be PTSD. This has been, you know, traumatic. And, but it goes back to when you do the work and you know what that is and you gain the clarity, it rebuilds the trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds very simple, but I know it's a lot harder than that. It, re- it really is. And I know, and, I, and, you know, I think that's why, you know, you know, to, to our listeners right now, it may feel daunting. It may feel like a lot, but you know what, even though it sounds a little painful of a process, it actually can lead to, to really wonderful, amazing spaces. Yeah. Well, I mean, you actually, it's like the silver lining that you get with any, really negative experiences that you do discover more about yourself than you would have otherwise. And to be able to take the gifts from that and to leave behind the parts that aren't going to be beneficial in the future, I think is, is part of part of the process too. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I think um, you, it's okay for you to recognize that you're ever evolving I think that's something else. If we go back to like some of that, the earlier question in terms of someone in their twenties and some of the advice, you know, we might give is recognize you're ever evolving. Like your 20 something else won't be your 30 something self, won't be your 40 something self or your 50 something self. And in some ways that in and of itself can be really empowering. Like see it as that adventure and that you'll always grow. So never feel like just because You've suffered through something, whether it's, you know, a, a trauma, narcissism, a toxic relationship, domestic abuse, um, adult survivor, that there isn't, uh, that you won't ever like continue to evolve and grow. We're always ever evolving. Yes. Yes, we are. And thank goodness, because life would be pretty, pretty strange and probably pretty dull if we were stuck in one spot forever. It would, wouldn't it? And I think sometimes um, it's understandable that someone might feel stuck. They feel like there's no options or avenues. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that what you have shared today has really offered a lot of insight and hope for people who maybe feel like they're stuck in a situation and, and can't think of what to do next. I mean, that is such a painful place to be. Um, and I think that hopelessness and feeling stuck is what leads a lot of, of people to just say, well, if this is all there is, then I'm just not going to participate anymore. But I think that what you've shared today has really shown that, you know, yes, things can be very dark and very painful and very confusing too. And there are paths out of it. And there are people who can support you and help you navigate through that because there actually is wonderful life on the other side. So I think you've you've really shared a lot of hope today. Oh, I you know I I am glad to hear you say that, and I really hope so because I truly and deeply and passionately believe it, and I've I've experienced it and I've seen it, and as you have too, and I and I hope that that is what others get out of listening to to it that there is. Yeah. 
Well, I could talk with you for hours, it's clear. I've, I've got actually even more questions, but we'll hold those for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, yeah, I have, I have two questions and then we'll wrap it up, all right? Sounds good. Okay. What's the most difficult decision you've ever made and what was the process that you used to make it? I would say probably the most difficult decision I made was transitioning from corporate America into the decision to lean into uh, going back to school, et cetera, and being a psychotherapist. It was difficult. One, I would say because of, you know, probably a lot of noise too. Like, wait a second, you went to law school, you're successful, you're doing this. What do you mean you, you want to leave your career of like, you know, 15 years and do something else? But the way that I saw through that was I leaned into resources. So I have to say, I, I, I felt stuck and uncertain. I, did, I, I leaned in on a therapist and a coach to help me to see things more clearly about what I wanted and needed in my life and to take that step back in terms of looking at like that bigger vi vision. I did work on like, what are my own self-limiting beliefs that I didn't, that I felt that I couldn't make this transition and why was, what was that about? I also realized that I could do it one step at a time. So when I work in a space of career transitions. Um, I think about my own journey and like how I was helped. And I realize that I don't need to suddenly throw up my hands and say, okay, I'm leaving because there's a lot of practical reasons to say, wait, I've got a paycheck. I've got this job. I just did it one step at a time. I leaned into resources. I did my research. I spoke to mentors and people about it. I then started my program while I was, you know, in my other job. And then eventually I completely transitioned out. And I absolutely leaned into also things of like feeling inspired and reading about people who sort of were in similar situations as well, which was by the help of my therapist who handed me a bunch of books and said, take a look at this. <laughs> you should read it and you should be a therapist. So that's sort of how I moved through it. I think a lot of tools and a lot of recognizing that they were my own limitations and just realizing that I could move through this and do it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. That That's really interesting. And I, I love so many aspects of that, including just taking one step at a time, because I think one of the things that keeps people from from taking a leap sometimes is just trying to do everything all at once or trying to take a really huge step. And, um, and I love that. And that's one of the things that I work with people on too, when it comes to navigating through fear is like, well, just take one step and then things kind of shift because you've taken that step and then you can, you know, assess and say, okay, what's my next step? Absolutely. Cynthia, you make such a salient point and that, that is something that, you know, you just struck me now that yes, it was the, there was also a lot of fears. That was a challenge. And as you said, when you work with individuals, what are those fears? Noticing them and just one foot in front of the other that you don't, you know, there's a bridge. You don't have to run to the destination immediately. It's okay to take your time with it. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think also that when, when you focus on the huge thing, 
sometimes it is overwhelming. And if you can kind of reel yourself back in and just focus on like the next one or maybe two potential acts or steps, it's a lot less scary than than staying focused on the ginormous thing. Because I mean, honestly, if you had focused on, okay, my goal is to become a psychotherapist and build this amazing practice and be on, you know, be like a go-to expert in all these different media outlets and reach people all around the country. And if not the world, like it would have been like, oh, that's really. (laughs) Yes. I'd be running in the other direction. (laughs) Yeah. But by by doing what you did and saying, well, I'm going to stay at my job right now, and my first step is I'm going to enroll in this in this course, like that's that's doable. So that's that's awesome. It's so true. You know, it's almost like it's kind of going back to that garden analogy. Like, um, okay, you know, first, like it's okay. So you, so you plant your seeds, right? Figure out what those seeds are. Start to plant them water it, let it get some sun, right? And it, it, then eventually it takes time to actually have your garden. And it's really the same thing, just, you know, one thing at a time. And um, I love that that's also how you approach the work in terms of what you do. Yeah. Yeah. We have so many overlaps. It's, it's really cool. Well, I have one final question and then we will wrap it up. How do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? How do I think women can develop their own personal power and courage? What a great question. I would say the first part is recognize your gifts. Like don't lose sight of the fact that they're there and remind yourself of them. I'd say be true to yourself, you know, really honor who you are and recognize and just really love yourself with self-compassion. Your authentic self is such a great gift um, and never, you know, lose sight of that. And realize that being vulnerability is daring greatly. That, you know, just it's okay to be vulnerable. Ah, I love it. I love it. I I used to be afraid of being vulnerable and and now it's kind of like, Oh, there I go being vulnerable again. I wonder what's going to happen now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I'm such a big Brene Brown fan, which is really just directly from her, but it's um, our empowered states, you know, feeling like we have power and feeling empowered is feeling like we can dare greatly, feeling like we can lean into recognizing who we are and loving ourselves. Yeah. That's how a whole world of possibility gets kind of unlocked and opened up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do I really love myself? Do I show myself self-care? Do I show myself compassion? And that ultimately can create those feelings of confidence, clarity, power, and empowerment. Yes. I mean, cool overlap again is that when you're feeling that way, you carry yourself very differently and that makes your interactions with people different. And it also sends a really clear message to people who might want to target you, manipulate you, groom you, you know, take you in a direction that is not positive. It makes them think twice because you're carrying yourself differently. That's so right, Cynthia. And then what happens is, right, and when we have all of those things, we have more of a voice. And when we have more of a voice, we feel more empowered. Yes. Oh, what a, what a great place to, to wrap up. (laughs) 
Yes. Well, before we go, I would like for you to share how people can connect with you, where they can find you out in the world, because I'm sure there are going to be people who want to. So my website is Opening the Doors Psychotherapy, so they can literally just go on to my site, you know, fill out the, you know, reach out to me via the contact form. And when they're on there, you know, peruse all the resources. I'm on Instagram at Babita Spinelli Therapy. I feel kind of cool saying that because I'm kind of like trying to be like, you know, all cool because normally I would just give my phone number, but now I'm up with the social media. <laughs> um, I, of course, you know what? You can call me. My, the, my office number is also on my website and on Facebook, Opening the Door Psychotherapy. I also have a private Facebook group called Relationship Fixer Upper for individuals who want to really kind of look at their relationship and work on it. So those are just various ways people can reach out to me. I really feel like I have a bit of an open door policy. So feel free, look me up, call, email, whatever feels safe. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we will get all of those in the show notes. So you are easy to find. And I just have to say thank you so much, Babita, for coming on the show, because this has been like a real eye opener in a lot of ways. And it's been a little bit scary in some places because it's brought up some some pretty dark stuff. But also, as I said, I just feel like there's been so much light and hope that you have shared today. And I just appreciate you coming on and and doing what you do and speaking so clearly and with such heart to to the subject of narcissism and and a bunch of other things too. It's been great. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia. It's been such a pleasure being on the show. I love listening to your show. And so I also feel like just so appreciative of being able to be on it and for you and I to have this dialogue. I love the work that you do. So thank you so much for making space for us to sort of have this today with each other and talk about, you know, some really important topics. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is the Born to Be a Badass show. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.